me invite you to take your Bibles and open them, please, to Luke chapter 10. We're going to pick up where we left off in Luke 10, 1. Luke chapter 10, verse 1. If you're using our church Bible in the seat back in front of you, that can be found on page 815. And um, today, as we read God's Word, we'll be reading the very words of Christ as He speaks to His disciples about wolves and woes. Wolves and woes. Let's read together. Luke 10, beginning in verse 1. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, Pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes." But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And for you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. The one who hears you, hears me. And the one who rejects you, rejects me. And the one who rejects me, rejects him who sent me. Well, I'd like to start with a brief word to those who call FCC their home. As a church, we are committed, it's no surprise, to the expository preaching of scriptures. So we typically and intentionally work our, very, uh, work our way, excuse me, very slowly and methodologically through the text of scriptures, mining it for truth and application as we go along. And although our goal today is really no different, you may find that our pace and format does feel a little bit different. My intention today is to move a little bit more quickly than we often do through the beginning part of this passage, because there's a really important truth that Jesus lays down at the end that I think requires some very specific and intentional application. So more on that when we get there. But let's, let's begin briefly here in verse 1, with Jesus sending out his disciples ahead of him, two by two, to the places that he's about to go. His charge... Well, it's a twofold mission. He tells them to proclaim the kingdom of God and its nearness and to heal, to, 
to herald the glorious truth that the kingdom of God is coming. Why? How? Well, because the king himself is coming. And these healings that follow are manifest evidence that this message and the messengers who bring it are legit. Now, if this is sounding somewhat familiar to some of you, it's because Jesus has already done something very much like this. He sent out the 12 apostles a few weeks back. We covered it at the beginning of chapter 9. But this is a different account. In fact, it's an account that's unique here to Luke's gospel. Dr. Luke is the only one who records this specific incident. So, so praise God that uh, the Holy Spirit inspired Luke to, to share this additional fact with us. I love how John tells us at the end of his gospels that if everything Jesus had done and said were to be recorded in books, there wouldn't be books enough in the world to contain the things uh, that, uh, that he gloriously did and ministered here while on earth. Uh, we get just, just a sampling here uh, that God has intended for us. But this is the only place we see this particular account, and it's different than Jesus sending out the 12, as we saw about a chapter ago, although there's many similarities we see in function. For, for one, this is a much bigger group. Instead of just the 12 apostles, Jesus is commissioning a larger band of his disciples something to the tune of about six times as many. And we would be remiss here not to mention that there are some Greek manuscripts. You know, the Bible was not written in the King's English or our English today. There were some original manuscripts that we have that, that give the number 72, 72 disciples being sent out, and others, perhaps you were kind of scratching your head as I was reading and you're following along, so other manuscripts and other English translations include a slightly different number. They cite the number 70 disciples being sent out here by Christ. Well, the simple truth is that Bible scholars are divided as to which was the original number. Was it 70? Was it 72? But this I don't think, can or should shake our views on the authority and the inerrancy of Scripture. Whether it was 70 or 72, I think we can have confidence that Dr. Luke wrote the correct number in his original manuscript. And that, friends, is what we are affirming when we say that Scripture is inerrant. When we say that God's Word to us is infallible, what we're saying is that the Scriptures, in their original form, in their original manuscripts, are without error. And thankfully, by God's grace and providence, there are zero instances, like goose egg instances in Scripture, where our understanding of biblical truth, our doctrine, is, is changed by these, some of these minor variations in manuscripts that we see that were copied over years that we, that we have today. No major or fundamental Christian doctrine of the faith is, or even a secondary doctrine, I'd say, is, is so much as uh, tweaked even by some of these variations in the Greek manuscripts that we have. So, so what's my point? My point is, whether Jesus set out 72, as my English standard version reads, or whether it was 70 disciples, perhaps as, as other translations read, it doesn't change our understanding one ounce of what these biblical truths are or how to apply them to our lives today. Which kind of begs the question, why am I even bringing this up then? 
Well, for one, I think we should have some intellectual integrity. Some of us are reading here the number 72, others are reading 70, and some of us are scratching our heads saying, what gives? Well, there's an explanation for that, and and it's better that we not sweep it under the rug. Secondly, some of you may know this, but this is one of the areas where those who are hostile to the concept of biblical inerrancy wage war with those who believe that the Bible is the inspired, infallible, inerrant Word of God. It's important for us to wrestle through these things, even even just briefly, so that we can have a framework for these things. So uh, students, when some of you go off to college or when when you're encountered uh, by somebody who's sort of uh, poking at the fabric of your faith in the workplace or around the Thanksgiving table, you're not undone when you hear facts like, well, I don't know, some of, the, some of the manuscripts say 70, some of the manuscripts say 72, what do you say to that Bible guy? It doesn't need to shake our faith. In the original manuscripts, God's Word is without error. This, to us, is the very Word of God. We can trust it. We can trust it. It's from God Almighty to us as his children. Well, if you're interested in exploring this further, I think we're just going to leave it there for the sake of time. Uh, I'd be happy to point you to some resources so so you can kind of parse through whether you want to chase whether it was 70 or 72. And I found Daryl Bach's treatment of this particular subject in the Baker Exegetical Commentary to be particularly helpful. It's a concise summary of some of these points here. So if you're kind of wanting to scratch that itch, hit me up offline. I can forward you some resources about that. Now, although the group here, this big group, whether it was 70 or 72 that Jesus sends out this time is much larger, Jesus makes it quite clear that this is really a meager number of workers compared to the vastness of the harvest. So what do you do about that? The the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Well, I don't know about you, but I just love it when God's Word just bottom lines the solution for us. And we see that here in, uh, in the text of Scripture. What's Jesus say his disciples should do about this scale problem? The harvest is way bigger than the number of workers that we have right now to, to, to labor in it. What, what should we do? Should we hold a missions conference? Should we drum up our fundraising efforts? Should we build a bunch of seminaries? I mean, how are we going to fix this harvest problem? Well, friends, I don't think that any of those ideas or, or, or initiatives are bad. As a matter of fact, they could be very good and righteous things to do. But, but look at verse 2. Jesus really does give us not just the question, the problem, but he gives us the solution. What's he tell us to do? He says, pray. That's the solution to the labor shortage in the, in the, uh, in the vineyard. We're to pray and ask the Lord of the harvest to raise up laborers. Isn't that interesting? He's the God of the gospel. He's the God who has the solution for salvation. There's only one name under heaven by which men may be saved, the name of Jesus. And he's also the God of the harvest and the God who supplies the need for the harvest. His first response for us is, Go to God. Go to the one who sovereignly governs the hearts and minds of men and women. He'll send out his laborers. Ask him. Ask him. 
quick application. There are some, perhaps even here, who do something interesting as a result of this text, just to be more faithful, to obey Jesus' call, to to pray that the Lord of the harvest would raise up more workers to go out and spread the gospel message all throughout the world. What they'll do is they'll set a daily reminder on their phones for 10.02. Why 10.02? Well, this is Luke 10.2, 10.2, and so they, they set a reminder on their phones to, to, to you know, ping them with a notification at 10.02 just to stop whatever they're doing at that moment and pray. And I think that's cool. Whatever it is, let's make sure that our application for the labor shortage in the, the, the vineyard is, matches Jesus. Well, whatever we do about it, we have to start with prayer. Let's keep, let's keep track. In verse, verse 3, Jesus says something a bit startling next. He says, behold, I'm sending you out as lambs in the midst of what? Yeah. Yikes. Lambs in the midst of wolves. Now stop for a moment, because that might be a familiar statement for, for you. But I mean, come on. Think about how sobering that statement is. Like, in what parallel universe does this ever work out well for the lambs? Picture it. What would happen if you sent these precious little lambs frolicking in the midst of a wolf-infested forest? Yeah, that ends up well for the lambs about 0% of the time, right? Jesus is making a point here, isn't he? He's making it quite clear, I think. His point is to his disciples, listen, you've got no chance of doing this on your own. I'm sending you out like little defenseless lambs. I think this is a reminder to you and to me as well as followers of Jesus today in 2023, just how weak, let's just speak plainly, just how defenseless, just how dependent we are on our good shepherd for protection and provision and resources we need him. We are so very dependent upon him for everything, like lambs in the midst of wolves. And yet, how cool is it if you just kind of sneak a peek into verse 17, where we'll pick up next week, what happens when these 70 or 72 come back? Well, by the grace of God and by his power, the lambs win. Isn't that crazy? The lambs actually win. I like how one pastor, Eric Ludy, puts it. He says, our God mocks the powers of earth and hell through floppy little lambs. We see this theme of dependence continuing from verse 3 and bleeding into verse 4 here. Jesus says, carry no money bag, no resources, No knapsack, no sandals. I take that to mean no extra pair of sandals. They're probably wearing one. And greet no one on the road. Talk about traveling light. Just like the apostles before them, Jesus sends them out with what one pastor calls a calculated deficit. Because when you literally have nothing, you are forced to rely on God for everything. Now, what's up with this command at the end of verse 4, not to greet anyone? Did that kind of strike you as interesting? Is this just Jesus being rude? He's just being mean to people? 
Well, absolutely not. This is simply a function of the urgency of the message that's being carried. After all, customary greetings at this time in the ancient Near East could be very long and involved. And if you're in crisis, or if you've got an urgent matter to attend to, and someone tries to stop you to shoot the breeze, are you going to stop and humor them, or are you going to blitz through to address the need before you? I mean, for crying out loud, some of you, like, walk the other way when you see someone you know in, like, Walmart. <laughs> the point is, you're like, guilty. The point is, there's an urgency here to harvest the fields when they're ripe. Verse 2, remember? The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few, so the laborers can't afford to dilly-dally. I remember growing up in the cornfields of upstate New York, and uh, when it was time to pick corn, it was time to pick corn. <laughs> you didn't wait. You didn't sort of like get to it when you felt like it. When my mom and dad were, were sweet, and uh, they were amazing parents, but um, they weren't waiting on us to take our sweet time to get dressed and get down to the cornfield. If you waited too long, you would pass the window of time when that harvest was ready to take in. Even here in southwestern Pennsylvania, some of you all know what I'm talking about with your tomatoes, how you're just watching them and they're, they're just about ripe, and then you wake up one morning and they're gone. Don't worry, deer season's a coming. <laughs> all right, let's keep moving. Verses 5 to 11, Jesus tells them, he goes on to tell them how they should respond to those who welcome and those who reject his kingdom message. There are some who receive and welcome the king's gospel emissaries on their mission. By Jesus' definition, he calls those people sons of peace, just someone who welcomes the gospel or those who carry the gospel. And by the way, look at verse 7. What's the way that people showed that they were open to hearing and receiving this word of the kingdom? The answer is hospitality. Their, their response to be, to be welcoming to the, the messengers and ultimately to the message that they're bringing of this kingdom that's coming from Christ is to share their homes, is to open their doors and share their beds and their meals and their provisions. I think that's still instructive for us today, too, wouldn't you say? And then there is a stark object lesson to those who will not, who would not receive them. In verses 10 and 11, Jesus tells them to shake off the very dust from their feet as an indicator of separation, of, of judgment. We saw this back in chapter 9 with the apostles, same response. If these people will have no part in the kingdom news that you're carrying, they'll have no part in the kingdom. Let them be as an outsider to you. Don't even let the dust from that town cling to your feet as you go. Now, in verse 12, Jesus begins to shift. Watch this pivot here in verse 12. From the description of these wolves and, and what they're going into to a pronouncement of woes. 
And his words here are nothing less than shocking. He says in verse 12, look with me if you would, it'll be more bearable for Sodom than for the town that rejects Jesus' kingdom messengers. Whoa. Like Sodom. You remember Sodom? You know, like the the Sodom and Gomorrah from Genesis 19. You know, the, the Sodom whose name, whose very title is synonymous with wickedness. Sodom, the city that God rained down fire and sulfur from heaven so that they would be utterly destroyed. That's Sodom. Can anyone have it worse than Sodom? Well, Jesus' clear answer seems to be yes. Those who reject him and the kingdom that he's come to bring will have it worse than Sodom. Let's back at, look back at verses 12 to 15 again. I think this bears our real and serious consideration. This is Jesus' words to his disciples, speaking first of the towns that refuse to accept the, the kingdom message he sent them to give. Picking up at verse 12, Jesus says, I, I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. And he continues with his woes. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable. Take note of that. More bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? Mm. you shall be brought down to Hades. So, Jesus initially calls out two cities, Chorazin and Bethsaida, and he adds Capernaum to the mix there at the end of this passage. What's up with these cities? Well, these are all Jewish cities in the region of Galilee. They're in northern Israel where Jesus grew up and where the bulk of his earthly ministry was centered. These are Israelites. These are people of the covenant. And these are people who have been witnessing Jesus' miraculous works, the kind of works we've just been reading about all throughout the Gospel of Luke. These are people who have heard his unparalleled teaching with divine authority. And yet, ultimately, Jesus tells us they have rejected his message. So what's he do? Well, he stacks up these cities there in his hometown region of Galilee, Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum. He stacks them up next to these notoriously wicked and pagan cities, Tyre and Sidon, even Sodom. And he says, it will be, listen, more bearable in the final judgment for these wicked cities, more bearable for them than for you. Friends, Jesus' point here, I think, is quite plain. He's not comparing the good to the bad. He's comparing the bad to the worse. And listen, although they are both marked for judgment, 
the punishment of some will quite clearly be more severe than the punishment of others. And before we go any further, I just want to stop and just, if I can, give you a pastoral note. Just sort of bear my heart a little bit, if I'm allowed to do that. Friendship Community Church, my job as a shepherd of the flock of God, an under-shepherd of Christ and His flock, along with the other elders here at FCC, is to point you to the truth of God's Word. We've got a responsibility before God Most High to speak His truth, to just repeat what He says, and to you, to tell you the truth. And friends, this passage is one of the places in Scripture where we see, I think, Scripture writing a misperception that many of us have. You see, there's a widespread misunderstanding, not just out there, FCC. I hear it in here. A misunderstanding about the nature of sin and its consequences. It goes like this. All sins are equal in God's sight. Friends, we've got to stop saying that. It's just not true. Look at your Bibles now. Jesus clearly believes that there are some sins that are more grievous to God. And listen, the punishments for those sins are more severe than others. Now, I want to be very clear, because I think it's easy to get twisted around here, and precision matters when we're talking about stuff like this. So, so I think we've got a, uh, a slide we'll put up on the screen for you. Here's what I'm trying to say. I believe, believe this is what Jesus is teaching. All sins, every one of them, are ultimately and eternally damning. The wages of sin is death. Only, always, ever. Any sin in the eyes of a holy and perfect God yields eternal hell and death. Are we clear about that? Don't write me off as a heretic. We're all clear on that. That is the clear teaching of Scripture. But don't jump so fast to the conclusion that because every sin in the sight of a holy and perfect God yields eternal death and hell, every sin in the sight of a holy and perfect God is just equal. There's none more grievous than others. It's just not true. The punishment for all sins, clearly from the lips of Jesus, is not the same. Now, I'm making a big claim. I understand that. I better have some Bible to support it. Agreed? This is our final authority for all life and living. So let's, let's look to our Bibles to see whether this truth is consistent and bears out over God's revelation. I believe, and I'll give you this morning, three reasons why the Bible teaches, I believe, that all sins are in fact not equal. First, Jesus taught it. Jesus taught that there are degrees of punishment. 
We'll give some examples here in a minute. Secondly, we see that the opposite, or maybe more accurately, the converse is also true. Many of us believe in the Bible's clear teaching that our rewards in heaven will not all be the same. In our eternal inheritance, although anyone who's trusted by grace through faith in Christ and Christ alone for their salvation gets heaven forever. But the rewards waiting us there are not all the same. We'll we'll look at a verse here quickly unto that end. If the rewards are not all the same, then it makes quite logical sense that neither should the punishments be. Last thing, friends, I, I believe the entire Bible just reinforces and teaches this truth. We see this principle reinforced all throughout the Scripture, specifically in the form of the Old Testament sacrificial system. It just assumes not all wrongdoing, not all sin in the eyes of God is equally grievous. So we got some work to do. First, let's, let's, let's take them in reverse order, and we'll just kind of work our way back through these. Is this a biblical principle? Well, well, first of all, we see this principle all throughout the Bible, and again, particularly in the Old Testament. Think about the Old Testament sacrificial system. I'll give you just a few quick examples. In Leviticus 4, you can read about and see different types of sacrifices that are required for different types of sin. You know, friends, you can sin and not even know it? I mean, come on, it's not that big of a leap. You can break, you can break the traffic violations on the road and not even know it. Is it possible that you would you'd be operating in such a way in certain areas of your life that you're sinning and not even be aware of it? Well, there's a whole category in the Old Testament in, in the Levitical law for, for unintentional sins and, and a sacrifice that you ought to give as unto the Lord for these unintentional sins. You can read about it in Leviticus 4. And darned if those unintentional sins and the subsequent sacrifices for them are not as weighty, they're not as heavy or costly as intentional sins, what we would call high-handed sins. You do it, you did it, and you knew it, and you meant it. That's at least one example. Let me give you just one more, and we'll keep clicking. One more. You, you know, there are provisions in the Old Testament for cold-blooded murder. You know what you're supposed to do in the Old Testament for cold-blooded murder? Kill that guy. But the The path forward for murder that was not premeditated, spelled out in God's word. We see it in Exodus 21. You can check me if you want. I got it right there for you. Exodus 21, look it up. The penalty for someone who has not sat and lay down and wait for his neighbor, purposing to kill him in advance, maybe they just got in a scuffle and things got out of control, there's still a sacrifice required. But it's not nearly as grievous. It's not nearly the same. Is God unjust? No. You see, it's worse to scheme and to nurse in your heart and in your head murder than it is for you in the heat of a moment to be overwhelmed and to make a mistake. 
the whole concept for cities of refuge, but I'm, I'm going too deep. Let's, let's keep moving. All I'm trying to say is the Old Testament law presupposes this. It's just taken for granted that not all sins are equally grievous before the Lord, neither do they require equal types of sacrifices. Another thing that we mentioned, here's the second point. If the rewards that we have in heaven are not all going to be the same. Although in Christ, everyone gets eternal life. But not all rewards are the same. It makes total sense that punishments would reflect the same kind of principle. Just give you, give you the, the Scripture verse if you want to look more into this later. This may be new for some of you, and I'm just trying to be helpful here. So this is 1 Corinthians 3, verses 11 to 15, and I'll just read to you briefly. Paul writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. We're talking about different rewards in heaven. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which was laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on a foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw... Each one's work will become manifest. Why? Well, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved as only as through fire. I heard a pastor say once, I thought this was pretty good, some of us are going to get into to heaven smelling like smoke. Boy, you're going to be grateful to be there, right? I had a buddy of mine who used to say, hey, if I'm peeling potatoes in the kitchen of heaven, that's good enough for me, amen? It's more than you deserve. But the Bible is pretty clear, isn't it? Everyone gets eternal life if they're in Christ. Not everyone gives the same rewards. It's the same thing, friend, on the other side of the coin with punishment. Last point, I think this is <laughs> the big one. Why do we believe this? Well, FCC, we believe this because Jesus so clearly taught it. Jesus teaches more than once in the Gospels that there are degrees of punishment in the final judgment. One is right here. That's why we're, we're, we're kind of stopping the way that we normally do things to kind of hit on this principle and hit it hard. Because it's so clear from the words of Jesus, isn't it? Is it not? Look at verses 12 all the way through to, to verse 15 and 16. Jesus is clearly saying it's going to be more bearable when on, in the final judgment... For Sodom, for Tyre and wicked Sidon, then it will be for those who saw his mighty works, who heard his gospel proclamation and outright rejected it. More bearable in the judgment. Seems pretty clear. Let's keep going. We'll get, this, I'll get to this one in another chapter or two. Luke 12, 47 and 48 I'll just, I'll read it to you. This is the word of Christ. 
Jesus says, the servant who knew his master's will, but did not get ready or act in according to his will, will receive a severe beating. A what? C minus. A severe beating. But he keeps going. But the one who did not know and did what deserved the beating will receive a light beating. We see it here too. And then and this one, I think, takes the cake. Jesus is going to the cross. We've, we've read that he set his face to Jerusalem. No one can sway him from his task of redemption. And, and, and at this moment, he's been beaten to a bloody pulp in John 19, beginning in verse 10. And he is standing before Pilate, the Roman governor. And we read, so Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus' response. Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you, who is that? Judas. He who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. Did you hear it? The greater sin. Friends, yes, Jesus taught that there was and is such a thing as greater sin. So, the collective testimony of these Clear biblical truths leads us back to where we started, and it's this statement. I want to I make sure that we've got this in our brains and we're not overemphasizing one side or the other. All sins are ultimately and eternally damning, but the punishment for those sins will not all be the same. This is heavy. I get that. And it bears asking, so what do we do about this? Well, for starters, I think we should probably stop saying all sins are equal. It's not what our Savior taught, and it's not what the testimony of Scripture teaches. And yet, here's here's another thing that I really want to caution us to do, or rather, not to do. I think we have to do this a lot. We have to guard ourselves from this impulse when we're stepping into a biblical truth that's a bit new for us, when we're wading into new biblical territory and our knees are a little bit wobbly and we're not exactly sure what to do about it, we ought not, in view of this truth from the mouth of Christ, to overcorrect. Simply stated, It is above your pay grade and mine to sit back and to presume to start classifying sins, making your own rubric of what's better and what's worse and what should be done as a result of that. That's not up to you, and Scripture is silent about the whole thing. God's the judge. So you get this idea of almost of Dante's Inferno. Remember reading that, some of you? 
where there's different levels of hell, and with great specificity, Dante goes on to describe what happens and what kind of torment happens at these different levels of hell. Come on. I mean, like, it's just not there. And neither, friends, should we presume to begin doing that sort of thing in our hearts or our heads. You know, if you run too far, if you overcorrect with this truth that though all sins yield eternal death, the punishment for those sins is not all the same. You might even find yourself in a category, a dangerous category, where you start to sort of shrug off or dismiss certain sins that you see as perhaps not as egregious in the eyes of God. Make no mistake about it, FCC, there is no such thing as a little white lie. Hell, that's the consequence for a little white lie. And although the clear testimony of Scripture is murder, cold-blooded murder and rape are more egregious than things like that, and we all know it, stop pretending, We all know that. We ought not ever to to adopt a dismissive attitude towards sin so as to shrug off that which Jesus died to free us from. That little white lie will will end you in eternal damnation if it's not covered by the blood of Jesus before a holy and perfect God. No sin ever should be taken lightly, regarded as flippant. That that idea is utterly foreign to the pages of Scripture. So that's one thing not to do with this truth. Now, what to do? Let me start by speaking to those who may be here who have perhaps not accepted Christ as Savior and Lord Or you're not sure where you stand before a holy and perfect God in view of your own sin and and your conscience, if it's not seared, should reveal to you the truth that you have indeed sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You've transgressed His word and His ways. If you're here and, and you're not a Christian, you've not made a decision to eternally follow Jesus, then friend... In view of this truth, I want to just appeal to you to cry out for mercy to the living God. Call out to repentance for Christ. Isn't that the language that Jesus is using here in Luke 10? Repent. They would have repented long ago. Apart from the mercy and the forgiveness of Jesus Christ, the truth of the Bible is that you... Me, all of us, outside of Christ, are what Romans chapter 2, verse 5 says, is storing up wrath for yourself on the day when God's righteous judgments will be revealed. I dare not sugarcoat it. Storing up wrath. What was the worst sin as far as Jesus was concerned? The profligate sin of Sodom? The famous and egregious sin of Sodom that warranted hellfire and brimstone? 
No, the worst sin in the eyes of Jesus was failing to recognize that he's Lord. That the gospel message that he sent out his emissaries to carry that was rejected was worse than the sin of Sodom. If you're here and you've not trusted in Christ, cry out for mercy. The hand of the Lord is not too short to save. It works like this. The wrath of God will either be poured out. You're storing up wrath for all that you've done to transgress God's will, God's word, God's ways. For eternity, you're going to be paying off your debt to a holy and perfect God. Or you trust that Jesus absorbed that debt in his body on the cross as he died for you, friend. This is Christianity. This is what it means to follow Christ. He took your pain. He took your sin. He took your consequence upon himself. Don't pay for it on your own. It's either you who's going to do it or he. Let me speak to believers here. And by God's grace, I know many of you can rejoice in that you have trusted in, in Christ's work on the cross, his resurrection from the grave for your eternal life. First, you can just sigh a collective exhale of relief because whatever you believe about this, you ought not to walk out of this room with any kind of feeling of guilt or shame because the truth of the Scriptures is in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He paid for those sins past, present, even future, when he said it's finished on the cross. The punishment that was rightly yours has been absorbed by Jesus. So we can sing, as we will in just a moment, that now and ever we confess Christ is our only hope in life and in death. So what are we to do? as followers of Jesus. Well, this is simple, but we just follow his instructions. Motivated by the love of our master, our job is to, instead of storing up wrath for the day of judgment, to do what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, to store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. You know you can store them up? What? Where moth and rust can't destroy where thieves can't break in and steal. This is good news. We ought to believe the truth about how God sees sin and how his, his gospel news rings forth in all of its glory and grace. Well, we're at the end, and this passage closes with a powerful statement from Christ in verse 16. To these lambs that he's about to send out among the wolves, Jesus says in verse 16, the one who hears you, hears me. And the one who rejects you is really rejecting me. And the one who rejects me, rejects him who sent me. Since these messengers are speaking with delegated authority, those who accepted their words were really accepting the very words of God. Think of it this way. If I were to say to my son, Finn, Finn, I want you to go upstairs 
And I want you to tell your sister Tessa for the umpteenth time to pick her shoes up off the floor and put them where they go. And Finn scampers off upstairs to relay the message. And he says, Tessa, Daddy says, fill in the blank, if she were to obey, whose words is she ultimately obeying? Is it Finn? Is she obeying Finn? No. Finn's just the messenger. She's heeding his words, but there's an authority that comes. Do you see now? When we carry the very words of God and his gospel, Jesus said, they're not ultimately heeding you or rejecting you. They're heeding or rejecting me. So, we are not the twelve that were sent out in chapter 9 at the beginning. We are not even the 72. This, these words were not written directly to us. But I think you'll agree, Friendship Community Church, that we too operate with a delegated authority. And we dare not go beyond what God says. Neither should we shrink back from what He's given us to proclaim and declare. Which is why we started by pleading with the Lord to give us the mind of Christ. It's yours in Christ Jesus. May the mind of Christ my Savior live in me from day to day by His power, controlling all I do and say, what a glorious prayer. That's our prayer now as we offer it up to the one who is our only hope in life and death. Would you pray? Oh, Father, thank you for your truth. God, thank you for its correction. Thank you for its eternal significance. And we pray, Lord, that you would indeed give us the mind of Christ. God, oh, how we so often lead out with what we want to think, with what we desperately want to believe is true, or what, what culture has, has told us, what we've picked up from the past and in various circles. Lord, give us your eyes so that we can see the world for what it is. Train us to love the things you love and to hate the things you hate, Lord. May we tremble at the very garment stained by sin and yet declare to sinners like us that Jesus is mighty to save. Now and ever, we confess, Jesus, you are our only hope in life and death. We praise you, and we pray in your name. Amen.